Good church. If you got a Bible, let's open up to Romans chapter 5. Let's uh, read together verses 1 through 11. I want to submit our time again to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help uh, for myself and for us, and, uh, and we'll consider what God's Word says for us this morning. Romans chapter 5, continuing on in our series in uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together one last time. Father, we want to leave rejoicing. I want to leave rejoicing. I want your people to leave rejoicing. I want those who are yet to be your people to become your child and to leave rejoicing, to rejoice uh, for the first time truly in you. God, we have reason to rejoice. Um, we have so many opportunities to uh, consider and rest in and sing about and pray and study these reasons to rejoice. In, in doing so this morning, I pray that uh, we would be full of joy, boasting in you and in you alone when we leave. God, would you do that? Would you do that in my heart? Would you do that in our heart together as your church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Halloween, aka Reformation Day, right? Today is uh, the day that many uh, will dress up. I think it may be, it's an important year in our family, the first year that it might be less cool to dress up uh, as a teenager, you know, in our household. But nevertheless, we will still walk around and beg for candy and uh, see if we can fill up our buckets for Daddy to uh, pillage throughout the year. 
but even more importantly than that, this is uh, the day that as, as Christians, uh, specifically uh, Protestant Christians, we look back in history and celebrate what God did through individuals in uh, really uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries leading up to the 16th century and 1517 um, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, uh, the castle church there in Wittenberg. Um, really attempting to uh, have a public discussion about um, beliefs in the church of that day, the Catholic church. And uh, the Lord would have it that many forerunners of Martin Luther's had gone before him preparing the way. The Lord had gone before him. Um, the, the continent of Europe was ready uh, for this. Uh, so many even inventions, con- considering the printing press, had made their way uh, uh, to be able to be used to publish these truths and for these truths to go out. And there was a several centuries of um, men and, and women who lived on these truths of the grace of the gospel and, and people who wrote and translated these truths into languages that people could then read. And so we have... Uh, much to be thankful for, uh, having the opportunity to have lived on the foundation that was reestablished uh, in the 1500s, really. Um, uh, I was reminded uh, even last week, thinking of Martin Luther's um, uh, gift to the, the, the people who were living in and around him during that day and, and the gift to Christians even afterwards. Uh, we had some neighbors and friends join us for our gathering last week and having been here, having heard the truths um, that, that our church rests on and has our foundation in, they being Lutherans said, man, you could have been a Lutheran church. And in the best sense, I said yes and amen. To that, because we want to remember those truths that Martin Luther and so many others held near and dear to their hearts. And we cannot uh, get away from those Reformation solas that were birthed uh, out of the 1500s, that we have been saved uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone according to the Scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. And we're going to see those truths even in this passage this morning. You probably saw some of those words being justified by faith, having access by faith into grace, that it is through the Lord Jesus alone that we have these things. And so that, that being the case in this passage, that's why I've entitled this, that we have reason to rejoice, a consistent note that Paul is hitting in this passage is one of joy, one of rejoicing, and the reasons for which we rejoice. Um, So when you get to chapter 5, you have this really important word right there in verse 1, the very first word in your text. What is it? What is it? Therefore, and Paul is essentially saying, okay, everything 
up to this point is leading us to these 11 verses. Especially what, um, what Paul has said from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 4. Having been being sinners and having our sin made clear as day that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 1, 18, all the way through 3.20, Paul then jumps right into the gospel and says, we're all sinners and in need of justification. And justification only comes by faith. If you want to stand before God and, and and be right before God when you stand there before Him, you must be justified by faith. And Paul explained that so well in Romans chapter 4, illustrating it, that it's not uh, by our works. It's not by our heritage as Jews. It's not something that we boast in ourselves. It's by grace through faith. And Paul says, Therefore... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And he uses, he opens this, this, this section with this argument. Since this is true. And I've proved it was true in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Since this is true, uh, that we are justified by grace through faith before God. There's several things that Paul lays out in this passage that are also true. Since this is true, then this is true. You're probably thinking, okay, we're back in geometry. Like, if this is true of this, then this must be true of this one as well. This is the type of argument that, that Paul is using in this passage. So six things. Having been justified by faith in the blood of Christ... First, we have peace with God. Look in verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is emphatic in uh, the Greek language. In Paul's writing, it, it stands out on the page. This is what we have now that we have been justified by faith. And this is not peace like Miss America hopes for every year or like even some peace treaties are aiming to bring about uh, through certain uh, declarations and certain contracts and this, that, or the other. Peace treaties that are signed in this year and then eventually fail in the years to come. This is uh, more than just horizontal peace that you may have with another person or with another country. This is vertical peace, which is the most important type of peace that we know in the depths of our heart that we all need. It's that peace with God. And, and this is important, and, and you'll see this as Paul begins to tease this out later on in our passage, that peace with God is huge. Uh, most people, many people, uh, at least those that were honest, would say at least that they have some level of peace with God, that, that they and God, they're friends, they're cool, God has nothing against them. But the reality, the truth, especially the truth of God's Word, says that before 
being justified by faith uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we were at war with God. We were in all-out battle mode against God. We were, as this passage later describes, enemies of God. And so the, the situation has radically changed. Having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, who Jesus then, in that kind of scenario, being war enemies against one another, no peace in the middle, Jesus then, according to the Bible, is called the mediator, who goes between and is the one who is our peace treaty. He sheds his own blood and we then have peace with God whom we were at war with, who we were enemies with. And the crazy thing about that is that it was this one whom we were at war at who sent the one who became the peace treaty so that we could then become not enemies but friends of God. So a little statement like, having been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God, seems, oh, that's sweet. Oh, that's just nice. That's wonderful. When you press into that, you realize how big that really is. We who were enemies, who were at war against the God of all creation, have been made at peace with God. We who were in outright rebellion and sin against God, has had our rebellion and sin paid for and punishment taken away and we have enjoyed peace with God. And this isn't some future peace. There's going to be some future aspects of this justification later. But this is present peace that we have with the Lord. Something that is uh, true of us right here, right now, and that we will grow into a greater knowledge and understanding of each and every day that we live by faith. And eventually one day when we stand before the Lord, we will know fully what that peace really means. When we know that we should be destroyed and punished and the wrath of God be upon us because of our sins and yet we fully get to enjoy that peace forever in heaven with the Lord, we'll know what a wonderful thing that, that really is. This passage is full of those types of truths. There's no commands in this section of Scripture. There's no even hints of exhortation of saying, therefore you kind of need to do this. You, you ought to be doing this. Just so many truths about those who have been justified by faith. So when we're looking through this passage, let's look for those things to be on display. That's going to be important when we get to this idea of rejoicing uh, later on. It's not a command. It's not an exhortation. It's a truth about those who have been justified. So that's your first indicative. That's your first true truth about who we are having been justified by faith uh, in this passage. But we see another one. Right on the heels of that one, you continue on in verse 2, and we see, through Him, through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a second thing. We have also, 
Paul says, and, and as you again read through this passage, you're going to see these building blocks on top of one another. Also, in addition to that, even more than that, more so even still, Paul's going to keep building these indicatives on top of each other, these truths um, that, that we see. Through Him, through Jesus Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace with God, but we also have access into this grace. We have access to grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we have this access. This grace has been on display ever since Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul notes that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. Not something we've earned, not something we deserve. It's been a gift, something that's been presented to us and that we receive as we receive a gift by faith with thankfulness in our hearts. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, seeing the echo of those Reformation solas um, reverberating in our ears even this morning 500 years later that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But notice in, uh, in, that, in that verse, in verse 2, two different aspects of that, that grace that we have. We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. So both of those verbs... Um, are in the perfect tense, which means that they are true now, but also forever. That we have not access once, uh, and then we may lose that access, or we only get it for a time, and then we lose access. Uh, Like, you know, kids in their candy buckets that they're going to, at our house, you know, you have access to your candy bucket only when mommy and daddy say. But this, this is like access now and forevermore. You have access to the grace of God by faith whenever your heart desires to rest and enjoy and receive that grace, to live in the midst of it. And not only access to it now and forevermore, but you have the ability to stand in it now and forevermore. And so consider, those of you who have had tickets to the game or tickets to the concert or access to to be somewhere where others don't have access to that. And you have access by a ticket to be able to go to that game. But it doesn't give you the right to sleep at the stadium or to stay at the concert venue, or to reside in the presence of the King forever and ever and ever. But the, but the Lord Jesus Christ has not only made you at peace 
with God, but he's given you access to the grace in which you can stand and stay forever. You don't ever have to leave. You'll never be kicked out. You get to enjoy it and be in it. You've not only got access to it, but you have the ability to stand in it. Stand also being a perfect tense verb, being now and forevermore. This is the the good news of the gospel. This is just another one of, of the blessings that we get to receive having been justified by faith. We're not only not enemies anymore, but we're at peace with God. And not only do we get to enjoy peace with God, but we have access to the overflowing grace upon grace of God in which we can stand as long as we'll have it. Good news, right? Good news for all of those who have been justified by faith. But then we get to the end of verse 2, and we read what sounds like a command. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But it's not a command. It's a truth. It's a truth. It's a truth of all of those who have been justified by faith. If you have repented of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have gone from being an enemy to one who is at peace with God, and you know that you have gained access and the ability to stand in the grace of God, you rejoice. This, this is the only right response that those who have been saved uh, will live in. We rejoice. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we rejoice. It's just what we do. This is why Christians ought to be more joyful than any others. Because we have hope. We rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. Hope's already been mentioned by Paul in speaking about Abraham. We can go back in chapter 4. We can look in verse 18 where Paul, speaking about Abraham, said that in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. And so he hoped. He had this hope in the glory of God. This hope that if God was who he said he was, then he will do what he says he will do. He had this understanding that if God is the creator and sustainer of the universe and his glory is at risk, uh, then he will do all that he says he will do lest his glory be um, diminished. The Lord lives for His own glory. He will not do anything differently than that. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our salvation is based on the fact that the Lord Himself will live for His glory. He's said that He would make a way of salvation. He has made a way for salvation, and He is continuing to fulfill that salvation for all of His people. And if He doesn't, 
his glory is at risk of being diminished. And so since God is God and he lives for his glory, we rejoice knowing that the peace that we enjoy, the access to his grace that we enjoy, is not at risk of being taken away because God is God. And he's going to always live for his glory. And he's going to always live in, in such a way that his glory is made known. And, but Paul goes even beyond that. He, he doesn't just rejoice in these truths. And he doesn't just rejoice in the fact that God is sovereign and living for his own glory. He goes to a place that most of you would like for me to probably skip over. And skim over when you, when you read verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We liked the part of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. That sounds good. That feels good. Uh, that rests well uh, with our hearts. When you get to verse 3, you wonder, okay, why? How? What does that look like to, to rejoice in our sufferings? And again, this isn't a command. It's not saying, therefore, you rejoice in your sufferings as a command. It's saying this is true. Just like it's true that being justified by faith um, enables us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, being justified by faith also enables us to rejoice in our sufferings. And as Christians, we do that. At least we ought to do that because of these other truths. We rejoice in our sufferings. And he uses that phrase, look in verse 3. He says, more than that. Just like that word earlier, also. Now in verse 3, more than that, even more than you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, you rejoice, we together, as God's children, we rejoice in our sufferings. How? How do we do that? Paul doesn't leave us there. He continues on. Knowing this, and he gives several different lines uh, of logic built on top of one another. You can rejoice in sufferings knowing these things. That suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. We can rejoice in the end of that uh, reasoning and logic that we will not be put to shame and that suffering will bring about that end point. That in the end, when we stand before God, we will not be put to shame. And so we can rejoice in our sufferings. And we can rejoice in sufferings because suffering produces endurance. Think about it for a second. If you do not have to endure suffering, you will not have endurance. If things are easy in your life, there will be no endurance as a part of your life. You have nothing to endure through, just things to enjoy. And so there's no endurance. If there's no hardship, there's no perseverance. 
and yet it's in the midst of suffering that it produces that endurance. And that endurance, Paul says, then produces character. As you're persevering through hardship, you are developing in yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. You're developing character. You're developing Christ-likeness in you. As you suffer well, as you persevere through it well, you're becoming more like Christ than you would have had you not suffered, had you not endured. And it's that character that produces hope. Just like the hope that Christ himself had in his Father's own glory and his Father's own promises. You begin to hope like Christ hoped in eternity and in the Lord's promises. And that hope is said to not put you to shame. You can see in this, if, if in Romans 8, in that famous passage, jumping ahead a couple chapters into Romans 8 and in verse um, and in verse 30, where it talks about, or even in verse 29, where it says uh, that those whom he pre- that he foreknew, he also predestined. And then in verse 30, it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's called the golden chain of salvation. And if that's called the, referred to by many as the golden chain of salvation, then I think we could do well to say that this is somewhat of a golden chain of sanctification. That by faith, being justified by faith, uh, in the midst of suffering, we endure. And in the midst, as we endure, we're producing character and Christ-likeness. And as we look more like Christ, we have greater hope in the glory of God. And that hope, in the end, will not put us to shame. This is an encouragement for us because we know, even according to Jesus Himself, who is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who has taken us from being enemies of God to being friends with God. That through Him we have peace. Through Him we have access. Jesus Himself encourages His followers to remember the peace that we have with God and to take heart in the midst of persecution and tribulation, knowing that we're going to face it. Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And this tribulation that Jesus is speaking of, this tribulation that Paul is speaking of, let me be clear, it's not the fact that you have the sniffles because you caught a cold the week before. That's a trial. That's a hardship because we live in a broken, fallen world. That's not the suffering that Paul is talking about. 
Paul is talking about the suffering that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. By being one who holds highly the fact that they have been justified by faith. Being persecuted because you're a Christian. Being persecuted because you worship the one true and living God. Being looked down upon because you hold certain values to be true. And and certain ways of life to, to be lived. This is the suffering that Paul is talking about that produces endurance. Uh, the sniffles and your cold this winter may pr- produce something in you, but in the end, it's not going to produce endurance and steadfastness and Christ likeness and hope that lasts, that in the end does not put you to shame. In fact, it's one suffering, get this, suffering, Paul will say later again in Romans chapter 8, that suffering is just one of the fruits of your salvation. It's just one of the fruits, one of the many fruits, one of the many things that you as a Christian will enjoy when in Romans chapter 8 verse 16, Paul says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That you can know you're a child of God when the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And if a child, then an heir, an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you've been justified by God through Jesus Christ, then you will suffer with Him. But you won't suffer with Him unless you've been justified by faith. There's no reason to. Why would you suffer for the Lord if you've not been justified? You wouldn't do it. It's a fruit of your salvation. And one of the things that the Lord just helped me to to consider and wrestle with is this phrase, put to shame. That hope does not put us to shame. And thanks be to God, uh, in our regular church Bible reading plan, we're reading through the book of Isaiah right now. And this past week, we were in, in the Isaiah 40s, let's just say. And all throughout uh, that section of Scripture, you see this phrase, put to shame put to shame, put to shame. And I wanted to read just a few from you and again, maybe highlight the fact of how important it is to regularly be in God's Word, to be a part of this Bible reading plan that we have. Not because we were so uh, smart that we thought, you know what, let's have them reading Isaiah 40-ish when we're preaching Romans 5-ish and then they're going to, no, the Lord just had this work out well for us, but Isaiah 44, verse 9 through 11, talks about those who put their hope in false gods, who put their hope in false idols, and will go on to describe how silly it is to take wood that you use to warm yourself and cook your dinner with that you then also use to build your idol with. And look at how he describes here in Isaiah 44, but I'm going to tell you everywhere. Throughout Isaiah, throughout the Psalms, throughout your Bible, 
there is a difference uh, regarding shame for those who worship false gods, whether they be statues on your shelf or idols in your heart, versus those who worship the one true and living God. Isaiah 44, verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Thus is the reality for all of those who are not justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus is true for all of those who are still enemies of God and have not made, been made at peace with God. Or skip ahead to Isaiah 45. And in verse 16, we see the contrast here. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. There is a difference between those who worship themselves, worship the world, worship the things of the world, worship any false idol they set up against it. And so were we all. We all would have been put to shame when we stood before the Lord. But because of Christ, and only because of Christ, and, and because of His grace towards us, and because the fact that we have access into His grace through faith, and, and we've been made at peace with God, and we're no longer enemies, we will not be put to shame when you stand before God. This is good news. This is the thing that I think most non-Christians consider when they stand before God. Will they be accepted or will they be put to shame? And the Bible's making it abundantly clear in this passage, in Isaiah, throughout the Psalms, throughout the Bible, that those who by faith have repented of their sins and trusted Christ alone to save them, they will not be put to shame. And that's the good news that we have in Christ. But not only that, but it says, how is that available to us? Look in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured. Perfect tense verb, never-ending pouring. Just continuous, unending, flowing grace and love from the Lord. It doesn't run out. Unlike my wife's flowering pot that she has to continue run across the backyard to fill up every single time and go pour onto her flowers and go back and get more and pour on her flowers. This verse, this word is describing that God's love 
has been and is always pouring into our hearts. How, how is that possible? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you were justified, Christian, by faith in Jesus Christ, he gave you as a gift his very own person, the person of the Holy Spirit, his seal upon you. And through his Holy Spirit, you have this unending pitcher of God's love pouring out upon you. How do you know? How, do you, how are you able to, to endure? How are you able to rejoice in the midst of suffering? It's because you've been given God himself to reside in your heart, the Holy Spirit, who enables you to know that the Lord loves you even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of being looked down upon and being talked behind your back by those uh, who know you're Christians, all the way to the point that many of those reformers who we mentioned earlier were burned at the stake, able to rejoice. How? Because in that moment, as the flames were licking their feet and they were in the midst of all of that pain, they were able to rejoice knowing that God's love was in that moment being poured out uh, through the Holy Spirit to them. And that through endurance, through the midst of suffering, they were becoming more like Christ who endured through suffering so that all of this could be true. So that we could enjoy this peace, enjoy this access, enjoy uh, this rejoicing that we have, this boasting that we have in the Lord. Paul illustrates it in verse 6. He says, for a while we were still weak. And here in this paragraph, you'll see Paul describing this former way in which we, in, in which we lived for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. Remember that phrase. That is a bookend phrase in verses 6 and in verse 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know how you can rejoice through suffering? You can rejoice through suffering with a hope that will not put you to shame because the love of the, the Father is being poured out through the love of the Spirit and the love of the Father is not only being poured out, but is being, has been proved to you through the death of His Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all at work to help you to be able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. That while you were, while you were weak, while, while you were ungodly, while you were still sinners. Paul illustrates it and says, 
I doubt any of you would even die for one of the other people in this room. Lay down your own life for, for somebody. And yet, and you love these people. Some of these people are family. And you probably wouldn't even lay down your life for them. But God did it for us when we were enemies of him. And he gave his one and only son to make this possible. God has poured out his love for us in the Holy Spirit. He's proved his love for us in the death of his one and only son. And so we rejoice. We rejoice even in the midst of suffering. But not only that, two more things that are true of those who have been justified by faith. The fifth thing is this, that we will be saved from wrath. In this passage, we've heard of things that uh, are already true. Um, But here Paul looks forward into the future and he says, not only have these things uh, been made true, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, but this is also going to be true in verse 9. Since, therefore, again, same type of language that we saw in chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, therefore, since, in verse 9, it says, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more, again, another one of those words adding on top of, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so in in Paul's mind, I think in, in God's mind, there's an aspect that your salvation is here and now, but is also yet to come. There is the fact that you have been saved and the fact that you are still being saved as you continue on in this. Uh, the fact that right now, if you are a Christian, have repented of your sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, you've been justified and declared righteous before God, but you are still being made righteous in the Lord's eyes until the day when you are perfectly glorified and made righteous before him forever in heaven. And Paul is saying, That if these things are all true of us now, that we have been made at peace with God, that we have access into his grace, that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we can even rejoice in the midst of earthly sufferings for our faith now, we also need to know that we shall be saved. We will be saved from the wrath that is to come. And this is where Paul looks forward at that day of wrath that he says all of us are deserving of in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and in 3. That that's what we all deserve is that wrath of God. But we shall be saved from the wrath of God. He explains in verse 10. For, here is that phrase again, if while we were, and here's the word, enemies... If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, much more than that, in addition to that, he says, 
now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So if we have been reconciled to God by Jesus' death, the fact that he was buried in the tomb and was raised on the third day should give, give us even more hope in the fact that one day too, we will enjoy eternal life and not have to endure eternal death forever. See, we're choosing to endure through sufferings now here in this life, knowing that we have an eternal life waiting for us there. What is this hundred years compared to the eternity that is waiting for us there? Rather than choosing to live life to the fullest here on this earth for this time and endure eternal death for all eternity. That's the difference. That's the difference that we have being justified by faith. We have this hope knowing that if God has done all of this for us on the front end, will he not let us enjoy all that he uh, has prepared for us to be able to enjoy in the end? Our family, Tucker turned 15 this week, and so uh, those of you like me, you looked forward to that day of getting to drive and getting to get your learner's permit. And I'm telling you, it is like about a billion hoops to jump through to actually get your permit. Uh, of all. We did all of these things. We signed up for this appointment months ago. We got all the paperwork. We got um, all of the forms ready. We drove an hour and a half uh, to a DPS office in the middle of Toller, Texas. Yeah, Toller. Yeah, you don't know where it is, do you? Toller, Texas, to be able to get this permit. We did all of this. I paid the huge fee of $16 to get this learner's permit. Uh, and, and all of these things, would I not let him sit behind the wheel and drive this car? Of course I would do that. Why would I go through all of that work to then just make him sit in the back and, and have to endure that? Even more so the Lord, having done all that he has done for us, why would he not save us from the day of wrath that is to come to be able to sit with him at the table that he has prepared for us? That's what we have to look forward to. Those of us who have been justified by faith. And because that is true, lastly, we rejoice in our God. In verse 11, more than that, go back and read this passage this week, Christian, and just highlight all the times that Paul is building on top of one another. More than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are a people who rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that he will make right on his promises, and that everything he does is for his own honor and for his own glory. We rejoice even in the midst of suffering for a time because we know that there is an eternity waiting for us that we will not have to endure suffering any longer. 
we rejoice just in the Lord himself and who he is. He's worthy of it. We are a people of rejoicing. And I was reminded of that this week as I've been reading through this uh, book of Puritan prayers. And I came upon one titled, A Colloquy of Rejoicing. And I just wanted to read, read it for us. For those of us who have been justified by faith, that this would be true of us, that we would consider, are we a people who rejoice because of these truths and rejoice in this way? It says, remember, O my soul, it is thy duty and privilege to rejoice in God. He requires it of thee. For all his favors of grace. Rejoice then in the giver and in his goodness. Be happy in him, O my heart, and in nothing but God. For whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects happiness. He who is grounded, he who is the ground of thy faith should be the substance of thy joy. Whence then comes heaviness and dejection when joy, when joy is sown in thee, promised by the Father, bestowed by the Son, inwrought by the Holy Spirit, thine by grace, thine birthright in believing. Art thou seeking to rejoice in thyself? From an evil motive of pride and self-reputation? Thou hast nothing of thine own but sin. Nothing to move God to be gracious or to continue his grace towards thee. If thou forget this, thou wilt lose thy joy. Art thou grieving under a sense of indwelling sin? Let godly sorrow work repentance. As the true spirit which the Lord blesses and which creates fullest joy. Sorrow for self opens rejoicing in God. Self-loathing draws down divine delights. Hast thou sought joys in some creature comfort? Look not below God for happiness, Christian. Let God be all in all to thee, and joy in the fountain that is always full. Christian, that's how we ought to be living because of what God has made available to us in Jesus Christ. Let us be a people of rejoicing, for we, more than all, have a reason to rejoice. And yet, if you're wondering whether or not you were to stand before the Lord, whether or not you would be put to shame or not be put to shame, please know, as Paul says, that by being justified by faith, you too can be made at peace with God, reconciled to the Father through the Son. You go from being enemies, weak, ungodly sinners to being children, friends at peace and who have access to the grace of God.
Repent of your sins this morning. Trust Christ alone to save you. Receive himself by grace through faith and enjoy and rejoice in the Lord alone. We're going to rejoice this morning. The Lord's Supper is often a time um, to confess and to repent. And we want to do that well. For in doing that, we remember how unworthy we are of all that we have received in Christ. And yet at the same time, it is a place and a table of rejoicing. Uh, it is one uh, of giving thanks. And so especially this morning as we have heard that Christ died, that Christ shed his blood, that Christ uh, was the one who was given to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. We want to mourn, to confess, to repent of our sins. But we don't want to stay there. We want to rejoice. And to rejoice in the fact that he died on the cross, but the tomb was empty on the third day. And that we have uh, a life of rejoicing here on this earth and an eternal life of rejoicing awaiting for us in, in the coming days. So if you're a Christian and followed Christ in baptism uh, and you uh, desire to worship the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord this way by eating of the bread that's a reminder of Christ's body and drinking of the juice that's a reminder of Christ's blood this morning that we want to invite you to partake with us. And we're going to ask that you would stand in a moment and to come to this center aisle and to come down by the tables to break of the bread and to take of the cup back to your seat and we will eat and drink together as we sing this final song of rejoicing back to the Lord. And so would you stand? And let me pray. Father, as we break of the bread and take of this cup, we repent of our sins. We remember the cross. We remember the empty tomb. Let us reflect on our unworthiness and your worthiness in this moment as we prepare our hearts to together eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.